Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. After more than 20 years as a reporter and opinion writer for the New York Times and Newsweek, novelist Anna Quinlan decided to give up that Pulitzer Prize-winning career and become a full-time novelist. She's had bestsellers time after time with such titles as One True Thing and Black and Blue Blessings, Miller's Crossing, and others. Her latest book is titled Alternate Side. Quinlan was in St. Louis last week for a book signing event at the St. Louis County Library. I talked with her in an onstage interview before an overflow crowd of more than 200, and I began by asking why she gave up a very successful Pulitzer Prize-winning career in journalism to take on writing novels full-time. Well, I think there's a two-part answer to that, Don. Um, The first is I always wanted to be a novelist. Um, When I was a little girl, I was... um, a constant reader. I mean, reading is one of the great pleasures of my life still. And I wanted to be one of those people. I I wanted to be Joe March in Little Women. I wanted to be Betsy Ray in the Betsy Tacy stories. I I, I wanted to be Charles Dickens. (laughs) Um, uh, um, And so I actually only went into the newspaper business in the beginning to pay the bills, showing how stupid I was because living on a newspaper woman's salary, as you know, is not as easy as it sounds. Um, And then I got into it and I just loved it so much that I stayed and stayed and stayed. But I still always wanted to write that novel. And the other thing that's always powered me is I like to do something until I feel like I've gotten good at it. And then do something entirely different. It's why I've had such a peripatetic career. And by the time I had done an op-ed page column for five years, I felt like I was kind of at the top of my game. And I never wanted to be not at the top of my game. And that seemed to me to be the perfect opportunity to step down and finally take being a novelist full-time seriously. Did you have the sense, though, that it was something of a crapshoot? I mean, here you were leaving a sure thing for something that may not have been so sure. Well, everybody else seemed very much to think it was a crapshoot. I mean, (laughs) it, it was very clear that the great world thought I was making a terrible error in judgment. But I'd already published one novel, Um, Object Lessons, which had done quite well for a first novel, in part because people knew me from um, a column I was writing called Life in the 30s. And then I'd published a second one, One True Thing. And when I finished One True Thing, I just thought, I really want to live in these worlds I'm creating full time. And because I was doing the column, I had to keep bouncing in and out, not to mention the fact that I had three small children um, at the time. And when I look back on the woman who wrote the op-ed page column, worked on novels and had three little kids, I don't know who she was, but I don't ever want to be her again. (laughs) Taking it back to before all of this started, I read somewhere that... uh, you had said that your newspaper career started as part of an affirmative action program with the uh, with the New York Times. Well, my career with the Times started that way. My newspaper career actually started with a sheet cake. 
Um, I was uh, the editor of my high school newspaper, and I was also working on Sunday mornings in the Mr. Good and Fresh Bakery in New Brunswick, New Jersey, where I was once held up at gunpoint, actually, which is when my parents made me give up the job. But um, I, I wrote to the editor of the local daily and asked him for a job as a copy girl for the summer. Um, they'd given our high school newspaper some kind of an award, and he turned me down. So I sent him a sheet cake that said, hire Anna Quinlan. (laughs) And he did. (laughs) But at at the times, I mean, there's there's no two ways about it. In 1974, six women um, throughout the paper brought suit against the times, charging that the paper didn't hire, promote, or pay women in parity with men. It was a class action um, suit. And as a, a part of the settlement of that suit, the Times had to go out and hire a whole lot of women at once. And a 24-year-old tabloid reporter was not anybody's idea of a Times man, um, but they hired me anyhow because of that suit. And I really am, I, I really have been a direct beneficiary of the courage of those six women. You know, I'm going to stay with the women thing for a bit because I have here a quote uh, from a program you did with Terry Gross on NPR, folks, <laughs> in which you said, all of the qualities that you need to be a good opinion columnist tend to be qualities that are not valued in women. What does that mean? Well, it means that at least at the time when I was growing up, we were socialized to be consensus builders, to be compromisers. Uh, Come let us reason together. And the fact is that when you're a good op-ed page columnist, you frequently have to stand up on your hind legs and say, you're wrong and you should listen to me and I'll tell you why. And that is not often the purview, certainly of the kind of um, girl I was when I was growing up. I um, I really had to push myself um, to get to that point. Um, and I really feel like I was, I had an extraordinary amount of help, um, from the fact that I went to a women's college, um, Barnard, the women's college of Columbia university. And that, um, in that atmosphere, I was taught not that my opinions would be tolerated, but that they would be required. And I really kept thinking when I first started the op-ed page column that I probably couldn't have done that job had I not been educated at Barnard. More and more women today are standing up and demanding to be heard. I think more women are running for public office in this country than ever before by a significant number. What do you make of this movement? I'm, I'm calling it a movement. I think I'm justified in calling it that. Well, I think everybody feels like the United States of America deserves to be much better and much better led than it has been. And there's no doubt that if women led it, it would be better led. Let me point out that we have an audience primarily of women. (laughs) In In case you didn't get that. Okay, so what do women bring to the table? Well, first of all, women have had to deal constantly with change. Um, our bodies change during the courses of, course of our lives in ways um, large and small, and so do our circumstances. So we go from being, um, 
young marrieds to suddenly pregnant to suddenly dealing with little kids. Now, that is more and more often the purview of both sexes, but certainly when I was growing up, it was disproportionately um, the purview of women. And the other thing is that for whatever reason, we tend to band together. Maybe it's because we didn't learn that competitive zeal that has pushed our brothers forward. But I think the banding together has been nothing but a good thing. I mean, if you look at the women's marches or you look at the Me Too movement, um, it's the coming together of disparate groups of women, putting their arms around each other and saying, we're just not going to take this anymore. Not only am I going to stand up, but I'm going to help you stand up. That has really elevated the issue. You know, I remember one um, evening, uh, my husband and I had a fundraiser for Senator Jean Shaheen at our house in New York. And I, I said to her, Jean, you know, I, I don't I don't mean to be banging the good old days gong, but I feel like when Stuart Symington and Jacob Javits and Hubert Humphrey were in the Senate, they managed to work together to find some middle ground, and you guys are so polarized. And she said, um, it's because we don't know each other, Anna. At the moment that we're not in session on the floor, we're back to our home bases to raise money. Uh, all All we're doing is... In, in, in Congress or raising money, except for the women in the Senate. She said once a week the women in the Senate make it their business to all have dinner together. And if you look at the bipartisan legislation that's been um, successful, this was, this was two or three years ago, she said this, in, in the last year an enormous amount of it has come from a Republican woman and a Democratic woman. So that compromising consensus that I was talking about being something of an issue when you're writing an opinion column, I think is nothing but good when you're trying to run a country. There's a woman of a much different stripe making all the headlines today. What what do you make of that? I really want a name like that. (laughs) (laughs) I want to be called something like Tomato Surprise. (laughs) Um, You know, I don't think I don't think the issue here is sex. I I don't think that's that's the primary issue. I mean, we all know that we have presidents who have behaved um, carnally, conspicuously during the course of our history. It's the payoffs. And it's not even so much the Stormy Daniels payoff, although that combined with what she insists was a threat against her um, is troubling. It's Karen McDougal and the fact that the National Enquirer bought her story only so they could bury her story because David Pecker, who runs uh, the Enquirer, is a close friend of Trump's, which shows the kind of machinations that are going on behind the scenes in this administration and that I find troubling. The other thing is um, the ritualistic humiliation of his own wife um, by the president of the United States um, speaks to something about how he sees women um, that is not surprising, but continues to be deeply, deeply dispiriting. When you're in front of a group like this, um, do you try to avoid talking politics? Because (laughs) (laughs) let let me just let me finish the sentence, because I ask that because 
we could assume that maybe half the people in the audience might not agree with you, and therefore you might not sell as many books. I have to say I never think of it that way. I mean, you know, what I hope is that I will be, I will try to be eloquent. When I was writing an opinion column, obviously at least half of the people who were reading my opinion column probably didn't agree with me. And the greatest compliment I could get was when a conservative would say to me, I never agree with a thing you say, but you always make me think about an issue differently. Because preaching to the converted is easy. I mean, I, you know, I watch MSNBC all the time, but I can pretty much tell you what the take is going to be on any issue of the day. It's, it's speaking in opposition to someone in a way that makes them say, well, that's wrong, but that's interesting. That makes all the difference. So I try to be, if, if not right, at least interesting. <laughs> you know, you'd said something earlier when we were together in the, in the green room and how last year was devastating. And I don't think you used that strong a word, but was harmful to the book publishing business. Yeah, publishing was book publishing was very flat because the kind of people who normally are going out buying books all the time were obsessed with the news. We're obsessed with MSNBC, we're obsessed with being online, we're obsessed with Twitter. And then there seems to have come a moment about a year in where all of those smart informed people went, I can't. <laughs> I just can't anymore, or I can't at this level anymore. And it looks like the business has really picked up again. <laughs> Certainly for the tabloid. <laughs> the mortgage will be paid. <laughs> My conversation with Anna Quinlan, recorded last Tuesday at the St. Louis County Library, will continue in a moment. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Welcome back. We continue with my discussion with author and journalist Anna Quindlin, recorded last week at the St. Louis County Library. The discussion turned to her new book, Alternate Side. I asked her, what kind of a woman is Nora Nolan, the principal character of the book? She's 48 years old. Um, she's somebody who always thinks that she didn't have that ruling principle of ambition that so many people she knows have had, and yet somehow she's zigged and zagged her way to what is considered a really good job, although I think potentially, in the minds of many, a ridiculous one um, as the president of something called the Museum of Jewelry. Um, she's been married for 25 years to Charlie. They have twins named um, Rachel and Oliver, and I really like her a lot. Um, I have never written a novel, except, I guess, for Blessings, where my protagonist was 82 years old, where readers did not assume that I was my main character, yeah. even though none of my main characters have anything in common with one another. You know, I am Rebecca Winter in Still Life with Breadcrumbs, and I am Mimi Miller in Miller's Valley, even though Rebecca Winter and Mimi Miller have zero in common. So people assume that I'm um, Nora. I'm not Nora, but um, 
I could be friends with Nora, and I can't say that of the protagonists of all of my novels. It's always difficult. Again, we've talked about this, and I've talked with uh, other authors about it, novelists in particular. It's very difficult to talk about a novel without giving away a lot of the, a lot of the things that you want people to read the book to get. I have another quote, however, I'd like to give to you. Uh, this was from USA Today, a critic, uh, a, a book critic, I should say, who writes, Quindlin's book, A Metaphor for Our Divisive Times, Americans seem to live on alternate sides, scrapping any sense of unity in desperate pursuit of a parking space in the big apple of life. <laughs> wow. What do you make of that? Well, you know... I, I started working on this novel long before um, the presidential election, um, and it, it only occurred to me afterwards, at which point I was pretty much locked into the manuscript, that people were going to think that it was a product of our current age, um, because there are immigrants in it who are very essential to the people that they work with and for. Um, because there's issues of class and race within the book, um, because it's set in New York um, among the prosperous. Um, and I, I actually think that's as good a read as any. I mean, one of the great things about novels is they're litmus tests. Um, some people look at war and peace as a novel about war, and some people look at it as a novel about peace, and some people look at it as a novel about agrarian policy in mm -hmm. Russia in the 19th century, and all of those things are correct. Um, but I think one of the reasons that, that novels are so hard to, to talk about is because plot is reductive, character is only meaningful if you're meeting them, and everybody brings themselves to the table um, when they're reading a novel. Um, I, I think the most spectacular thing about fiction is, and, and actually someone just did a study with actual data, which I love, despite what's going on in Washington, um, showing that people who read fiction tend to be more empathetic, which doesn't surprise me because I think the, the staggering thing about novels is they make us feel less alone. You know, the most pernicious thing about being human is something bad happens to you and you think covertly, I am the only person in the world who's had this terrible experience. I'm the only person in the world who's felt this way. And then you read a novel and suddenly you think, uh, we are legion. And, and that's so soothing. You know, this is a, seems a very simple plot, excellently written, uh, but nonetheless, quite simple. What what brought you to it, and what do you want people to take away from it? Well, I, I just, I had a lot of different thoughts coming together on this one. Um, I, it, oddly enough, I really wanted to write about middle age, because I do think there comes that moment in your early 50s where you realize that this might be as far as it goes. And I think particularly lots of the men I know find that very difficult. Um, and feeling so under fire, even if they're prosperous, um, makes them angry and aggressive. And one of the things that I wanted to show in the book is what happens when, when people um, 
are upset with their own circumstances. Um, I also wanted to write about the fact that Americans like things to be settled. Um, you know, check the boxes. I'm working on a commencement speech right now about the fact that people sit out there at their graduation and think, well, that's done. But it's not. Nothing is ever done. And yet we think college, check, job, check, marriage, check, children, check. And that moment when you realize that all remains fluid throughout your life can really leave you at sea. And again, it seemed to me that when all of these prosperous people were at sea, were at least among the men feeling angry and displaced, um, that the ways in which they might interact with those less fortunate than them um, could be dangerous and pernicious. Don't women reach that same stage at approximately the same time? You know, I don't think they do. Um, I mean... I'm sorry, I'm not tr intentionally trying to play to this audience, but wait till you, wait till you hear what's going to happen when I say what I'm going to say. <laughs> At about age 50, which is what I'm talking about here, I suddenly realized for the first time in my life that I did not give a damn what anyone thought of me. <laughs> See? The difference in the way women come to middle age and the way men come to women middle age is that women feel constantly backstopped by the culture. You're not thin enough. You're not pretty enough. You're not smart enough. You're not a good enough wife. You're not a good enough mother. You know, Esquire magazine never has a line that says how to lose five pounds in a week. <laughs> Every women's magazine at some point has had that. So, you come to the moment where you realize you don't care about the backstopping anymore. Men don't have that same kind of backstopping. And the other thing that's really powerful for women of my generation is great success for all of us came as a huge surprise. Because we grew up thinking, there is no place in this world for me. There is no place. And so, you know, when one of us winds up a federal judge or a United States senator or the president of a college or a newspaper columnist, it's a constant surprise. Mm -hmm. I cannot believe this is my life. For our male counterparts, many of them, they can't believe that they're not masters of the universe, mm -hmm. that they got to a certain point and no farther. And that's why I think that middle age into, you know, the 50 into 60 fulcrum is tougher on our male colleagues and it is on us. And that's, that's painted uh, very well in, in this book. Charlie, the husband of right. Laura in the book, is, is a perfect example of this. I want to ask you about marriage because marriage is a big thing in this book. Mm -hmm. A couple of lines, again, I've come prepared with, with some quotes because some of them actually kill me. <laughs> <laughs> and he's married. Yeah, right. <laughs> This one, neighbors are much more solicitous of their dogs than husbands, maybe because the dogs don't live as long. <laughs> or, this, this one will get you, monogamy worked much better when people didn't live, didn't live past 50. <laughs> A different Anna came out to play for this book. <laughs> I think and, so. And I knew, actually, that there were some of my readers who were going to feel a little disoriented by this because it's sharper 
Yeah. I like to think that it's wittier. It might even be considered meaner than than books I've written in the past. Um, it certainly has a somewhat different feel. It, within within uh, I think a, a clear fence of how I do what I do. I mean, I like to think that, you know, the observed detail, the characters, character is really all I care about in a novel. I don't care about plot. I just care that you feel like you know these people. Um, and, and all of those things are still there, but there's an edge to this book that I thought had to be there, um, both because of the subject matter and because it's set in New York City. Do you think that uh, people really do get bored with each other after they've been married 25, 30 years or more? No, I don't think they get bored with each other, but I think um, marriage becomes a kind of a, a series of routines. And that, that that works really well for people until some crisis comes along that knocks the marriage off its axis. Sometimes it's illness. Sometimes it's a problem with a child. Um, sometimes it's a relocation or a change in jobs. In this case, it's something that happens on the block. But I think any routine works well absent um, a, a swift jab in the ribs. And then sometimes when, when that swift jab comes, all bets are off. Well, you mentioned the block, and for our... Uh, for our audience's benefit, we'll point out that the the book essentially takes place on a single block in New York City, a dead end block, a very unusual kind of block for New York City. Right. There's City. very few. There's very few dead end blocks in Manhattan. Yeah. You know, it made me think. Uh, I had mentioned you again back in the green room that my wife and I recently moved from a co-op here in St. Louis to another place, and I felt in your book as if I had been parachuted into this block where I became a voyeur and just watched the way these people interacted. It reminded me so much of the co-op we had just left because we all knew each other's business, maybe too much. Maybe well, people were like, people we didn't like. Thank you so much for saying that because apparently, I don't read reviews. My best friend who is a book reviewer vets the reviews for me. <laughs> and apparently somebody wrote that only someone who lives in New York City or has lived in New York City could love this book. Meanwhile, I'm, I, I meet a reader who's from Chicago and she's like, oh my God. This is the story of our lives on my block in Chicago. I was interviewed by a CBS reporter from Philadelphia, and she was like, I know these people. These people live on my block in Philadelphia. And I'm like, okay, so it's not just New York. And I think it's not just the city either. I mean, there, you know, there are whole areas of the suburbs where everybody gets to know each other and, sure. you know, you gloss over some of the things that you don't like about your neighbors in the interests of keeping the peace until, again, something bad happens. New York, also obviously a character in the book. You live in New York. And I do. lived there for, for a long time. I couldn't quite figure out whether you liked New York in this book or didn't like New York. There's because there are positives and negatives. But you live there, so you must love it. Well, I, I think that if you're going to write a novel set in New York and it's going to say something about class, there have to be positives and negatives um, because there are in the city. Um, 
but I happen to be one of those people. The one, no, there's two things I have in common with Nora Nolan. One is that I love New York City down to the ground. I mean, when they scatter my ashes, as I say, it will be over the Hudson River. Um, the second is that we both hate rats. <laughs> and yet somehow we've wound up in the rat capital of the world. <laughs> Another point uh, brought up uh, quite nicely in the book, right? <laughs> Thank you. Right, right, right. Well, you uh, spent a lot of time, your early married life in Hoboken, New Jersey, right across the river. You went to high school in South Brunswick, New Jersey. When, in those days, do you recall looking at the city and thinking about the city? And if so, what were you thinking then as opposed to what you're thinking now? It, it didn't really happen for me like that in the way that it did with some of my friends. What happened is that when I was 18, I decided to go to Barnard. Um, I was, I had developed a feminist leanings in high school. And I, when I visited there, I felt like it was a place that was really, really interested in, in, um, free women. And, um, I was probably there. I was deeply unhappy my first semester. I was hugely homesick and I felt hugely outclassed because my classmates were very, very smart. But about two or three weeks in, I was coming out of the subway and almost like a coup de foudre, a lightning strike, I thought, this is where I've always belonged. This is, this is, this is my place. What is it? What is it about that city? There's an energy, certainly. I grew up not far from there and I recognize that, but what is it? You know, I, I, I almost think it's, for me, it's indescribable, except to say that I feel like my metabolism and Manhattan's metabolism run on the same line, that if you hooked us up to some machine, it would, it would look exactly the same. But having said that, for a novelist, it's invaluable. I mean, you know, I love, no, I don't, but I understand why other people love the idea of peace and quiet. But when you're always trying to save string to develop a keener and deeper sense of human nature, being among humanity pretty much 24-7 on the subway, in the street, in the market, it's just invaluable. I mean, I spent so much. I did as a reporter, too. I used to say all the time, I'm an eavesdropper. I, I just like to listen to people talk to each other or watch them interact or not interact. And, and you know, that comes in so handy in terms of, of what I do when I'm sitting alone at my desk. Do you have to pull back on that at all when you're writing for an audience that is going to be largely, primarily, outside of, uh, of New York City, people who have never been there, people who don't know it, and people who have maybe jaded uh, jaded impressions of what the city is like and what the people there are like? No, I, I don't think so. I mean, look, I, I, I wrote a little book called Imagined London that is about how I learned to love London, which is my second favorite city. I learned to know and love London before I ever visited there by reading about it in books. I mean, you know, I didn't, I didn't ever stop when I was reading Bleak House or Dombey and Son and say, well, I've never been to London. I might not even like London. I, I, I was sucked in by the fact that London is as big a character in Dickens' novels as, as any of the characters are. And so I, I believe that, you know, people can learn to know and love places without ever having visited them.
That was Anna Quinlan in a conversation recorded last Tuesday at the St. Louis County Library. We'll be back in a moment. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Welcome back. I continued my conversation with Anna Quinlan, recorded last week, with the observation that a lot of people think her new book, Alternate Side, is a book about the haves and have-nots, and the question, what does she want people to know about the have-nots in the book? Well, I think I'm more interested in them understanding by the end of this book that the haves have not. (laughs) But, I mean... I think what's clear in the novel is that the have-nots make life possible for the haves. And that's true for all of us. I mean, um, I'm the granddaughter of immigrants. They came here um, not speaking very much English. Uh, They didn't melt into the melting pot. They lived in a neighborhood that was essentially a ghetto. And the point of the exercise was not for them to speak English or to mingle among us. It was for their daughter to do that, and for their granddaughter to write for the New York Times. That's how America works when it works best. And, you know, these are the people in this novel are people who are working for people who have more money and people who have more real estate and who might have more position. Um, But they're doing it um, in part because their children or their grandchildren are going to become those people. I found in reading the book that the have-nots were the strongest characters yeah. in, term, in terms of strength, not not in terms of being written differently than the others, but they were strong people. Yeah, you're talking about charity? Talking about charity. <laughs> I'm talking about, was, was it Zita, the, the wife of Ricky's wife? Oh, Nita. Nita, Nita. See, that's what you're after. You're, yeah. you're after that moment where a reader thinks, you want the readers to think they're real. Because they become so real to you. They become so real that basically they're realer than real people. That's how I feel when I'm reading a good novel. And that's how I feel when I'm hitting on all cylinders when I'm writing a novel. And so to be able to talk about those women the way we are up here, that's just like thrilling for me. Yeah. There's, there's one point in the book, and again, I'm not giving anything away here, but I... I thought was most interesting, and that is that Nora gives away a lot of her stuff, old clothes and ice skates, as I recall, and some other things, to uh, to one of these have-nots who turned around and sold it on eBay. <laughs> well, you know, the, the there's two parts to that. One is that Nora is a genuinely good person who is doing this out of the best impulses. And the other is that it has a condescending, lady bountiful aspect to it um, that she doesn't recognize until the moment that somebody rubs her nose in it. I'm sure members of the audience have questions. May I see some hands? People would like to ask a question or two? Because I think we're being set up to do that uh, at this moment. As that's happening, do you ever miss the newspaper business? I love newspapers down to the ground. Um, I am probably the only person who um, went to a screening of The Post and started crying about 10 minutes in and cried through the entire movie. 
because it was like the story of my life and mm. a lot of the people in that film were people I actually knew and who are now gone. But I don't miss being in the business. First of all, um, some younger people than I are doing fantastic work, especially for the Times and the Washington Post. One of the most thrilling developments in journalism in the last couple of years has been the reemergence of the Washington Post as a first-tier newspaper in America. Really. But second of all, um, there's no room for me to be a reporter anymore. I was an opinion columnist for too long. Nobody would take me seriously as, as a reporter. And um, I don't want to be an opinion columnist right now. Um, I, I'm somebody who really relies on logic and fact and data. I don't know, I don't know how to engage with people who deny those things. And I don't think a primal scream is a good debating point. Aside from the Times and uh, the Washington Post, which are enjoying such success in, in covering this presidency, what's your take on the state of journalism today? You know, I wish hyper-local journalism was much, much better um, because it's really necessary. I mean, you know, if you want to know what's happening in Washington or you want to know what's happening in Beijing, boy, the Times and the the um, Post and the Wall Street Journal and the BBC and all these other outlets that you can get online are invaluable. But, you know, to know what's going on in terms of zoning changes in your own town that's not so good. And I'm hoping that um, there was a period there where it looked like Patch might fill the, um, fill the void there. And in some places it's doing quite well. Um, but I hope somebody will, will beef up those kind of local outlets, not only because it will be great for citizens and readers, but because it will be great for young journalists who always um, historically have cut their teeth um, on small local outlets. Where is it going to be five years from now, would you guess? I have no idea. I mean, everything's moving at the speed of sound. I get asked, and I'm sure you do too, from time to time, what advice you'd have for young journalists today. And it's very hard to give them advice because no one knows what it's going to be like five years from now. Yeah, the one thing I would say, though, is there are two kinds of young people who come to me about the business. There's the kind who say, I've been considering whether I ought to go into journalism. And I almost tell the I almost always tell those people that they ought to consider something else. But there's a kind of person who comes to you and says, I'm a reporter. I'm a reporter. I wanted to, you know, they've got that fire that I developed after that one summer as a copy girl. And those people will not be denied. And they might not be writing on paper and they might not be writing in traditional outlets, but you know. We started, we humans started telling stories around fires and caves a long, long time ago because people need stories. Um, Joan Didion said, we tell ourselves stories in order to live. And we always will, and the form will change. But people who have to tell stories, they will not be denied. And one of the key words is the word write. Uh, you have to learn how to write before you can really do that effectively. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Do we have more questions from the audience? First of all, 
Thank you so much. I've loved your books and uh, just wonderful. As a, a fellow writer, I just really appreciate everything you're doing. I was very sad when I got to the end of this book because I didn't want it to end and the characters were so real. How about a sequel? <laughs> you know, I've never wanted to do a sequel. Um, right. When I write a novel, the one thing that always surprises me is that the last sentence catches me a little unawares. I'm sitting at my desk, and I know I'm at the end, and I'm typing away, and suddenly, almost like a door slamming, I type a sentence and realize it's the last sentence. But at that moment, in some sense, I'm well and truly done. And I felt that way about um, about all of them. So I, I don't... I've already started another novel I'm about... 10 or 15,000 words into it and it's completely it's a completely different locale, completely different characters and completely different issues. So, there you go. But thank you so much. You're welcome. Can I have your name sir and ask everyone to give their name? Sure, David Strom. David, thank you. Very thank you, David. Is, is there a nicer compliment that can be made than oh. someone saying I didn't want it to end? It's it's so great. Yeah. Okay, ma'am, please. My name is Jane Wallace. I have enjoyed all of your books, and I'm sure you, most of the people here in the audience feel the same way. So I was a little bit concerned very early in the interview when you said you are a person who likes to move on to other things. You are obviously at the top of your game as a novelist. What's next for you? <laughs> Actually, it's a little different with novels because that ability to push yourself, to scare yourself, to do something that you haven't done before and aren't sure you can do well reemerges with each novel. At least it does for me because I try to change up what I'm trying to do and what I think I'm capable of. So I haven't yet hit the moment with novel writing where I feel confident and competent enough to even think about doing something else. I, 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 think, I think I'm in this one for the long haul. <laughs> Obviously good news to everybody in the room. Come on up, please. Hi, I'm Jill Nowak. Um, love your novels, but I think I probably wouldn't read them if I hadn't read you as a columnist. That's what drew me to it. And I felt um, through my early adulthood, particularly reading your columns, often helped me learn how to be in the world as a professional young woman. Um, since you won't go back to being a columnist, what would you say to young women today, particularly as we see youth and what they want and how they struggle and how diverse they are and the things that they're dealing with in the world? Well, my first reaction is to say that after what I saw at the podium um, during the gun control march, the young women of America don't need any help from me. <laughs> but what I think I, I, I would say to any young woman I know is don't waste time on things that don't matter. I mean, I, I look back to the years where I was worried about, you know, how I looked or who liked me or who didn't like me. And I, I'd like those hours back. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, it's hard to stay strong, but this looks like the generation that might be able to do it. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing what they do next because they really, 
they really are some group of young women. Thank you. Young people overall, it was spectacular oh, over the weekend. It was so thrilling. Yeah. That, that energy has to be sustained for it, obviously. Yes, sir. Hi, I'm Neil Finbloom. Uh, one of my favorite uh, relationships in the book was between Nora and the man on the street. And how did how did that develop? And did you plan on that happening at the beginning of the book? And did you see how it was going to end as it as you thought about how you were going to write the book? He's actually my favorite character in the book, <laughs> Phil. Although I do really like Charity a lot, but Phil, because he's kind of like he's a little like the Dalai Lama of the streets in that everything he says is sort of telling and empty at the same time. And I love that about him. I love that moment where he, Nora says, am I going to read a doctoral thesis about people who give money? Am I going to see myself in a doctoral thesis about people who give money on the street? And he says, you never gave me any money. <laughs> um, uh, um, I, I, I don't know why, but that just occurred to me really early on. You know, sometimes you have to like, you have to give yourself a break when you're writing a novel. I mean, it's, you know, look, I'm not an oncology nurse or a second grade teacher, which are two of the hardest jobs on earth. But for me, it's a hard job. And so sometimes I try to give myself a break. And every time Phil showed up or every time I had to describe the company that Christine, her sister, runs with the yoga clothes, I... I had a good time and I got a break. <laughs> so thank you for noticing. Oh, thank you. Phil was sort of a symbol of the New York con. That's the way I saw him. Well, yeah, he was, but he was always speaking truth yeah. to Nora's power. You know, he Nora would would be all lit about something and Phil would just say to her, you need to relax, you know. <laughs> My name is Joanne Graziano, and I'm a former New Yorker, and um, your columns in the Newsweek were always encouraging as a young nurse starting my career in New York City. Um, but I was curious, because I just started reading the book in the, the block in New York City, because I was a visiting nurse from one end of Manhattan to the other. I was just kind of curious if that's in the West Side. It's on, it's on the Upper West, West Side, yes. yes. Yeah. Is it in a certain neighborhood? Maybe Inwood or... <laughs> I think I'll just let it exist in the ether. You know, one of the one of the kind of exciting things about doing something like this is my last novel was called Miller's Valley, and it was about a small town that um, was under threat because um, the government wanted to tur basically turn it into a reservoir. So I, I write this novel, and it's very vague about where it is. Um, and I, I think I was doing a gig in Illinois, and a woman came up to me, and she said... I just want you to know that I am from Miller's Valley. And I was like, really? Like, there's a place called Miller's Valley? And she goes, no, no, it's not called Miller's Valley. And she tells the name of the town. She said, but that's exactly what happened with our town. And I know you based it on our town. So I was like, okay. And then I went to California, and the same thing happened. And I went to Pennsylvania, and the same thing happened. And that's, like, fantastic. That, because it goes to that that aspect of fiction that I was talking about, which is we bring ourselves to the table and we put ourselves in the story. And, and as a writer, but even more so as a reader, I just think that's remarkable. Yeah. And I'm already hooked and I've 
Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Our time has come to to wrap this up. I have one final question I should have asked asked at the very beginning, and that is, what does the title mean? Well, originally the title was simple. There is in New York something called alternate side of the street parking. So one side of the street is Monday and Thursday, and the other side of the street is Tuesday and Friday. Is Wednesday the... Yeah, Wednesday's a, I think Wednesday's a free day. And, and so, like, like, people move their car, you know, my kids would bring one of our cars home and, and, and park it on the street, and, and I'd say, Maria, that's a Tuesday space. That means you're going to have to move it. And she'd be like, Mommy, I'll get up at 8 a.m. tomorrow morning and move it, and I'd be like, okay, when has that ever happened? <laughs> um, and, and, you know, then they have to move it to a Monday Thursday space and so on and so forth. If that had been the only way in which the title worked, I probably would have had to lose it. Um, But the truth of the matter was, by the time I was done the novel, between the distinction that you mentioned between the haves and the have-nots, the differences in the way Nora and Charlie saw their lives and what was happening on the block, the distinctions between the men and women on the block about what was going on. There were so many alternate sides that it worked across across all kinds of platforms, and I was home free. That was author and journalist Anna Quindlin in a conversation recorded last Tuesday at the St. Louis County Library. Her latest book is Alternate Side. Archive versions of past St. Louis on the Air programs are available for download or podcast at stlpublicradio.org slash stlonair. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 KWMU. Thank you for listening. I'm Don Marsh.